All right, three to seven can go. Everybody else open your Bible to Romans chapter one. If you will, open your Bible to Romans chapter one. If you've got a pen or pencil, something you can take notes, I just want to encourage you this morning to to jot some stuff down, take some notes. You know, I've uh, <clears throat> a lot of changes is probably fixing to, to uh, take place in our church. Um, just some things that I've been studying on for a while, and and then now I've um, got some other areas I'm looking at. Um, for for instance, you know, our church, our church is is the body of Christ. We should be a family. The Bible calls us brothers and sisters. Uh, we're most known by our love. You know, Jesus taught that by by your love for one another, all the world will know that you're His. Okay. And, and every Sunday, I rush in here to get to talk to just a handful of you, and I don't get to talk to, to a bunch of you. A lot of you, I, I know your names, can't remember it. You know, if you go to a family reunion, you go there to to talk to the to your family and to visit with them and to catch up and but if and that's the way God designed the church. But if we're honest, how many of us this morning? How many of you have went to somebody else and listened to them this morning and prayed with them and encouraged them and spoke God's word to them? I mean, let's be honest. That that's what the church about. The church is not about. I don't know how we ever got to. I'm not being negative. And I really don't know how we got to this format in America. Um, but, and I'm all about preaching. I love our worship and, and magnifying Jesus. But, and so we have some good things kind of like in the book of revelation, Jesus talked to the church. He said, you got some good things and you got some things you need to change. I just think we got some things we need to change how to accomplish that. I'm not sure yet working on that, uh, because we have a time element we've got all these, I think it's why they call it the Lord's day and not the Lord's hour because there's no way possible that I can get around and, and visit with everybody as much as I want to, because here's where I'm at. I don't want to just preach to you. You know, I can preach to 10,000 people and I don't know them. You're my church. I'm your pastor. I want to know you and I want to, I want to bear your burden. How can I bear your burdens when I don't know your burdens? How can I rejoice with you? Like the Bible says, if I don't know what you have joy about. And so I think our church is, is great. I really do. And I think that we're set apart from a lot of churches. But I want to to grow in that uh, so that we can know one another outside of, you know, some of y'all say, well, get connected with social media. I don't care about looking at a phone or computer. I want to look at you face to face. You know, I'm old school. It's so what I'm going to be. Uh, so you got to work for that. But but I do want to know you. And, and as we grow, I think that, we'll, you know, I want to know everybody here. And I want you to know my family. And I want you to know the leadership of the church. And and so, anyhow, um, here's, here's a book I want you to read. And I didn't get all this from this book. This book just came along, and it was already where I'm at. And... And I'm glad this is going out of a podcast. Not, let me say this. Not that I agree with everything, okay? So don't, when you read this book, don't look at it word for word. Does Brother Randall agree with this? But, but I, so far, I've read, me and my wife's read about half of it. And I'm, I'm on the money with it. 
Francis Chan, Letters to the Church. I think every Christian in America should read this book. Every pastor in America needs to read this book. Because it's dealing with the churches of America and the way they are and the way you look at the scripture and go, this is not adding up. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing book. So uh, I've only read half of it so far. So if you get to the last half and there's not something good in it, then Letters to the Church, Francis Chan, Letters to the Church. You can order it on, online and get it a couple of days. I started reading it on... Um, Thursday on my deer stand and man it just I can't put it down my wife was reading it to me yesterday and it's got a lot of good stuff to consider I think it's one we're going to do a double read on but you know I respect him greatly as a as a teacher um let me say this and on Sunday nights where's Rusty Rusty's not in here okay we talked you know, on, on Sunday nights we're going to change up a little bit on Sunday evenings we're going to start at five o'clock if you want to come to this uh, we're going to start at 5 o'clock this evening. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together as a church because that's what they did in the, in the first church. They gathered and they broke bread together. When they broke bread, it was a remembrance of Jesus' broken body and the blood that he shed. Okay, We're going to have, instead of Monday evenings, we've been gathering to pray. Instead of Monday evenings, we're going to, we're going to change that to Sunday evening. So we're going to, we're going to pray together. Uh, and, and take the Lord's Supper. And then I'm going to ask everybody who's planning on coming tonight, if you will take time this evening, turn off the phone, off Facebook, off t- TV, and read the first three chapters of Acts. And we're going to come together as a church, and, and I've got some questions for you out of Acts just to discuss the nature of the church. I want to take a look at our church, and I want to say, if we need to change some things, then let's change it. Now, I know this doesn't go with everybody, and some of you be like, I don't like this. But really, the church is not about what we like. It's about being obedient to the Scripture, doing what God calls us to do, and being the church that pleases God, not pleases man. Okay. And one of the things that the Lord absolutely commanded in His Word is that the church as a whole, that we are disciples. The disciple means a follower and a learner. So that if you're a born again believer, you should be a disciple. Uh, you should want to know Jesus, follow Jesus, learn the scripture, you know, learn what God desires of you. That's absolutely one of the weakest points in the American church. But, 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 but to be a disciple and, and also to make disciples means that I'm, that my key purpose here is, is not to evangelize. You know, we're the church. Hopefully everybody here knows Jesus. I probably not in this crowd, if you want to be honest. But I think where the church has got off course is we've turned Sunday morning into total evangelism, trying to reach the lost. And you can do that. But the core purpose of the church is, in uh, my position here, is to equip the saints to teach you God's word so that you can go out and you can make disciples yourself. Everybody here, okay? If you're here and you go, I'm not interested in making disciples, chances are you're not one. If you want to be honest, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm just going to be blunt and frank this morning, not judging you, judge your own heart. But there's some things in Scripture we've got to ask ourselves. And as a pastor, I have to ask myself when I, when I deal with the church to go, why is it the Bible says this? And I think for years we've been making so many excuses. You know, I was talking to Willie this morning. I said sometimes church is like, like this. It's like a coach who's on a, who's on the field on Friday night, and his team's all on the bench. The other team's out here waiting, and he's like, "Okay, guys, you are a football team. You have the jerseys. You you said you wanted to play. Now, now, who wants to go out and play? You know, and a couple of them, oh, come on, you know, and you're trying to convince the whole time." You know, that's what we're here for. We're to do this. And, you know, maybe one of the team members go, well, I'm, I'm, just, I'm afraid I'll drop the ball. 
oh, I understand that. You know, go ahead and sit there. Maybe, maybe 50 years from now, you'll get up and you'll go play it. And another one's like, well, I'm not familiar enough with the game and I don't know my position as well. And, and we begin to make all of these excuses. And so the coach is spending his whole time just trying to, to get the team to do what they should naturally desire in their hearts to do. And sometimes with the church, I think over the years, I'm not just talking about this crowd, but, but over the years, I've been, I've been in church myself and, and, and you, you see that going on. And I think, I think the leadership of the church has started making excuses for the people to go, well, you know, in, in time to come, they'll grow and they'll grow. I'm thinking, does it take, does it really take 20 years to grow to where you can share your faith? Does it really take, you know, 10 years for you to know the scripture? And there's, a, why should I stand up here and go, y'all should read your Bible? Really? It's like, like I standing going, hey team, y'all should play football. That's crazy to me. You know, it should be, you say, oh, that door's driving me crazy. <laughs> I don't know why, but it is. I got to shut it. But and I'm, don't take me as being judgmental. Y'all, y'all, you're going to agree or disagree with me, but I, but I want you to think about yourself. You know, wouldn't it be awesome if we all got together, like we're, hopefully we're going to do tonight, to where during the week that you're so hungry for God's word and to know Jesus and and to, to, to walk with him and to hear him, that you're in God's word and you're studying and, and, and that you desire to know God's word so that you can share it with people. I mean, that, that would be incredible. That we would have an incredible church, so, you know, to where we're like, you know what, we'll, we'll bring a sandwich with us and we're just going to stay all day. That way I can talk to you and we'll pray together and we'll minister to each other and it'll be the Lord's day, not the Lord's 30 minutes. Because even as I speak right now, I'm reminded I've got to hurry up and get started because I'm running out of time. So... Yeah, we'll go with that. Now, looking in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. When you leave here today, if you'll take these notes and you'll go home and you'll, you'll retain them. Okay, this is the work. I want, a lot of times the church wants the, the, the pastor to do the work. You need to be doing the work so that you retain it in your heart so that you're equipped and prepared to do what God has commanded us to do. All right? It says in uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I'm going to probably go pretty quick. Paul's speaking here to the church of Rome and he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. That the gospel is how that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. For it is the power of God to salvation. For who? For everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. Okay? And so Paul starts off here and he makes a presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he talks about salvation. That's a word we hear constantly in church. But some of us don't grasp it. I'm going to kind of go into detail on the wording here. I looked up the word in the original language of salvation. It means to be delivered. To be set free. Or to be saved from something that's, that's got you bound. All right? And so Christ, the gospel, has the power to do what? To deliver me to set me free, okay, and to save me from impending judgment. Then Paul goes into and tells us what we need to be saved from in verse 18. Notice what it says. I'm going to go quick through this. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God is is not something we want to think about we don't the modern churches don't want to talk about it we don't want to preach about it i, I don't think believers and be honest with you hell is not something that i enjoy meditating on but you can't put the truth in the back of your mind or you'll never do anything about it and i want us to deal with the truth this morning as god's people and what this wrath is the word wrath means anger and vengeance and so there is a group of people 
that face the anger and the vengeance of God. That's what hell is all about, okay? If you, if you study hell in the Bible, and I'm going to preach on that here before long, we don't like to think about it because we don't like to think in reality there are people who are going to die, who are going to be cast into a, a lake of fire and brimstone, the Bible talks about, where the worm does not die, a place of torment forever and ever and ever, a place of darkness, a place where you're separated from God, is referred to as the bottomless pit, all of these different things that if you look at hell and you consider it, it scares you to death. And I'm not using a scare tactic, don't care nothing about a scare tactic, but I want to use a reality of scripture this morning for us to come to the place to realize, hey, there are people. What people? There are people who are going to end up here for all eternity. Most of us like to, in our minds, think, well, I'm glad that's not me. And I don't want to think about, you know, in reality, we, we, want, to, we, we want to really, you know, save everybody up mentally. But listen to me, you can save people mentally, but if their heart's not truly saved, they're going to hell. In all reality, you know, I think, well, I think this person is okay. And, I, you know, they've been to church a couple times, and, I, you know, they got baptized. Never, I've never been to a funeral that was honest. To where somebody stood up and said, this person was an enemy of God. They hated the church. They hated Jesus. They never, they, they lived in sin. They embraced sin. And now they're, they're, they're condemned in judgment by their, own, by their own means. And they're in hell forever. I've never heard that. I've always heard, well, I know that they live like the devil, but they're with Jesus now. Because one time, a long time ago in their life, they, they were baptized. They made a profession. And I'm like, really? Do you, now, does that change where the person's at? Absolutely not. Because here's where I'm at. When I was, you know, when I was a kid, you know my testimony. I made a profession and did all that stuff, you know, that church stuff. If I'd have died, the preacher would have stood up and said, you know, even though he drove off from church listening to Motley Crue and talking like a sailor and living like one and all these things, he he came forward one time in the church and he was baptized and, and, and saved and all that stuff. So he's in heaven. That wouldn't have changed where I was at. I'd have been in hell. I'd have been condemned to hell because of my sin, because I died in my sin for all eternity, Okay. And so we as God's people need to come to the reality because here's the thing. If hell's not a reality to you, why are you going to, why, what do they need to be saved from? Why do we need to tell people about Jesus? We just turn the church into self-help messages to where we make this life better. We can ignore everybody else, hope they make it. And that is absolutely contrary to Scripture and what God's called and designed us to do. Now, um, think about this. Who, who is it that faced the wrath of God? God was our creator, created us, created this, this awesome creation that we live in for us. He gave it to us and put it under our authority. Short story, you know, in the book of Genesis, man called God a liar. He didn't believe God. He believed what the devil was telling him. And so he embraced it, was called sin. He chose to go against God, rebelled against God. And in doing so, man aligned himself. Adam aligned himself and made an allegiance with God's hated enemy. Understand Satan, the word Satan means adversary, a hated enemy. God, there are things that God absolutely hates. He hates sin. He despises sin. Insomuch that when his son took upon sin, he punished him to death for it. God hates Satan. He hates his ways. He hates darkness. He hates evil. There are several things the Bible talks about that God hates. And so when Adam rebelled against God, he made an allegiance with the devil, actually became a prisoner of God's enemy willingly. And aligned himself, and because of that, we are altogether born as prisoners and in allegiance to the enemy of God. And when you align yourself with the enemy of God, then you face the same thing that the enemy is going to get. And God created hell for the devil and his angels. 
and God's going to judge, and God's going to pour out wrath upon his enemy. Now, we don't like to think about ourselves at any time as an enemy of God, yet the Bible clearly states that the carnal mind is at enmity with God. We are enemies of God. We hate and despise holiness and righteousness apart from the Lord Jesus Christ within us. Amen? That's what the Bible says, as I'm just telling you. And so think about this. It would be like, because we live in such a, a politically correct joke uh, of, a, of a nation when it comes to those things like that. You know, it would be like this. I, I read here a while back that there were certain Americans who were going overseas and making an allegiance with Islamic terrorists. And then all of a sudden, when the United States military was smoking uh, the, the buildings and stuff and killing those terrorists, bringing about righteous judgment, upon evil and darkness and wickedness. And then you have an American who, who rebelled against the American government, who rebelled against the authority that they were given and their rights, and they aligned themselves with that. And the next thing you know, they get blowed up, and you've got all these people going, hey, hey, hey. That's not right. I'm thinking, no, 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 it is absolutely right. Because if you align yourself with the enemy, you're going to get what the enemy's got coming. And rightly so. And God is a righteous judge. And when people rebel against God and go, I'll have nothing to do with God. I'll have no authority of God's word in my life. I choose to live in sin. I choose to continue in sin. And I'm going to do things my way. Then they face the wrath of God. And rightly so. Ain't that comfortable? It's not comfortable at all. It's what we're called to make a difference. Okay? And now some people would stop right there and they got this picture of God as being this angry, vengeful God. But if you keep reading, you'll see that's not so. Okay? So real, for time's sake, okay, I'm going to give you the outline of this. Paul brings an, the book of Romans is an awesome book. It is a courtroom case is what Paul's doing. He's presenting a trial upon everyone. And he brings everybody to this place, okay? And he starts off, you say, so who is this group that this applies to? Because we need to know. Number one, I need to know if I'm in that group that faces the wrath of God or who else is in the group that I need to be concerned about to try to get them out of that group, okay? So who's the group? So Paul says, let me, let me cover the bases. He starts off and he, and he says in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, you'll see that word a lot used in the next few chapters, all ungodliness, not just certain sin, not just certain ungodliness, all ungodliness. And unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so in chapter 1, in the, in the rest of the verses there, Paul breaks down three groups of people in the next two chapters. He starts off in this book, right, and you read it later, he starts off in chapter 1, and he brings the heathen idolaters. You know, all those people that we sometimes think about and go, these are the people who knew God, they had the consciousness of God, they had creation to look at, yet they changed God into an image that fit their wicked lifestyle. They would not have the truth, but they but they made idols and they worshiped their idols as God. Now, I know that we're a people who we don't bow down to idols, but there are things that we serve and we worship. As God. We don't call it God, but we worship it and we serve it as if it were God. We give to those things the, the, the glory due to Jesus only. And another thing is you can have an idol in your mind. You can be sitting here this morning and go, I don't believe in a God who's angry. I don't believe in a God who's vengeful. I believe in a God who's a big fluffy teddy bear in the sky ready to receive everybody. That's idolatry. That's no different from bowing down to an image that you carved out of wood or made out of stone. 
And so these heathen people are the ones you read about, and you continue to read about them. It says God turned them over, and they did. A, they got involved in all perversion and homosexuality. And the next thing you know, they don't want to retain God in their knowledge. They don't even want to think about God. So God turns them over to a reprobate mind. And in that, you go down the last part of, of chapter 1, and it gives this long list of all kinds of sin. You know, we want to stop up here and go see the homosexuals perverts, abomination. They're the ones who face the wrath of God. No. He goes on down and talks about backbiters, whisperers, gossipers, you know, that kind of stuff. Puts it all in together. And, and so then you've got the heathen people, okay? That's the people oftentimes today that we look at and we go, I understand. There's people out here in Cofield and Beto and, and all the people over here in certain neighborhoods doing all these godless, wicked, dark things. They're, those are the people that's going to hell. But then Paul goes to chapter 2, and I want you to look at it. <clears throat> Finishing up in chapter 1, he says, uh, in verse 31, these people are un- undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving. Those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? And so, and and you'll keep reading. I hope you read this later. But he goes down and says, do you say you should not steal, but you steal? Do you say do not commit adultery, yet you commit adultery? Jesus said if you even look upon a person in lust, you commit adultery with them already in your heart. And so now Paul brings somebody else into this group who faces the wrath of God. Not just the heathen, okay? But those who are judging the heathen going, oh, they, they deserve to go to hell. They don't go to church. They don't, they don't have no morals, you know? I don't do those things. And Paul's like, hold on a second. You're right in there with them. Because you're, you're self-righteous. And so now we've got the heathen and we've got the self-righteous. So if you're one of those people who go, I'm going to heaven because I don't do what the heathen do. You're just as guilty as the heathen. And you face the wrath of God. Good people don't go to heaven. Understand that. Good people do not go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. Because the Bible says there's none good. And so if a person thinks that by their own goodness and by judging and looking down upon others, elevating themselves, that it's going to elevate them to heaven, they are dead wrong and they face the wrath of God. Then you look in, in chapter 3. Okay, oh, No, no, back up in verse 17 in chapter 2. This is the third group. It said, indeed, you are called a Jew and you rest on the law, and you make your boast, you brag in God and know his will, and you approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law, you are confident that you yourself are a guide of the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having a form of knowledge and truth in the law. You therefore teach another. There it is. Do you teach yourself? You preach that you should not steal, but do you steal? You say, do you commit adultery? Do not commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You abhor idols. Do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentile because of you, as it is written. And so, man, it's hot in here. I'm going to walk all over. 
So, so what he's saying there is you've got the heathen. Everybody expects the heathen to die and face the wrath of God. The self-righteous man uses the heathen to exalt his own righteousness, thinking that that's going to get him to heaven. Paul said, no, you're just as guilty and you face the wrath of God. And then you've got the Jew. And the Jew would represent a person who is religious. They're church. They have the knowledge of God. They know all about God. They know what the scripture says. You're quoting it this morning before I speak it. You got an understanding of everything. And you think that because you know God's word and you go to church and you're religious, that somehow that's going to save you. And he's like, "Mm mm-mm. So now we've got the three groups, the heathen, the self-righteous, and the religious. Every one of us fit in one of those groups. And so Paul, and here's what's awesome is, Paul's doing this out of mercy. God instructed him to write this because, you know why? If he never said nothing to the self-righteous, they'd die and go to hell. If he never said nothing to the heathen, they'd die and go to hell. If he never warned the religious, we'd die and go to hell. And so God's like, I'm going to do away with all of these excuses. I'm going to get all this stuff out of the way so we can get down to the nitty-gritty of salvation and who faces the wrath of God and who needs salvation. So he says in chapter 3 and verse 7, For the truth of God has increased through my life, To his glory, why am I also judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all, there's that word, all under sin. As it is written, now now look at this. this. This sums it up. He's presented his court case, and now he's given his... His summary. There's none righteous. No, not one. The word righteous means to be made acceptable with God. Okay? There is none righteous. Not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Some of you might argue that and go, I know good people. I know people who don't go to church. I know people who, who don't love Jesus, who do good things. It doesn't say that people don't do good things. It says they're not good. In their heart, they are not good in the standard of God's goodness. Right. Not one. Not one. So you mean to tell me that, that that sweet little old lady, understand old ladies used to be young ladies. Okay, Old men used to be young men. Hadn't been old her whole life. A sweet little old lady lives right down the road from me who bakes me cookies and comes down who, who doesn't want anything to do with the Lord. You're telling me that she's going to die and face the wrath of God in hell even though she cooks me cookies and she's a, she seems like a good lady. She faces the wrath of God. For there is none righteous, not one. There is none good. There's none who seek after God. Quit making excuses and start telling them the gospel. And then it goes on down and says, Her throat is an open tomb. It means on the inside he is dead. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp lie under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. They enjoy it. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is talking about all, every single person. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, what is the purpose that God gave the Ten Commandments? What is the key reason that he gave it? It wasn't so that you could look at it and go, okay, this is what I need to do in order to be righteous, to be right with God, to be made acceptable on God's side. I need to keep the Ten Commandments. Good luck, because you and I, ain't okay he said the purpose of the law is what let me get back to my place of the lost it 
It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it was, it was, it says to those who are under the law, why? That every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may become guilty before God. So when I read the Ten Commandments, you know what I do? Because here's what the self-righteous man, the self-righteous man goes, I'm not as bad as that other person. But have you ever looked upon a woman in lust? Well, I've done that. Then you're an adulterer. Have you ever hated somebody? I've done that. Then you're a murderer. Have you ever dishonored your parents? Have you ever taken God's name in vain? OMG. Oh, yeah, I've said that. Then you're a blasphemer. You ever lied one time? You're a liar. And so all of a sudden, the self-righteous man, his, his hope of salvation is melted away. And he does what? He becomes guilty before God. You say, why does God want everybody to become guilty? Until you're guilty, you'll never ask for mercy. You understand that? As long as you're self-righteous, as long as you're holding on to your religion, you will never appeal to God for mercy, which is the only way of salvation. You will contend and you will argue and you will reason with your intellect and your self-righteousness and your religion. And you'll have all the answers for God. And yet you will never come to the place until you look at the law of God. That's why it's so important that you present the law of God, not your intelligence, not human reasoning and philosophy with lost people, but to take the scripture, speak the word of God to people and let it do what it does. It brings them to a place where their mouth is stopped and they are guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in its sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, so that, that pretty much sums it up right there on who faces the wrath of God. It means every single one. Last time I checked, the word all in the original language means all means we're all guilty before God. We're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all face the wrath of God. Agree or disagree, but you're, you're disagreeing with the scripture, not me. I'm just reading it to you, and that's why I wanted you to look at it so you can read it for yourself. But it used the word all. Now, here's the good part. Now that God, when you take the scripture, he has, us, he has us all guilty. Right after that, notice what he says in verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, Keeping the law doesn't save you. This is totally apart from the law. The righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Talking about Jesus. The law and the prophets did everything to express the salvation of Jesus. That there was a Savior coming. A lamb that was slain. The blood that would be spilled. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And so everything in the prophets. You're studying Isaiah and Willie's Sunday school class. And and Daniel and and, uh, David's Sunday school class. Daniel and Isaiah just scream to the glory of Jesus and the work of the gospel that he's going to do. And they witness of Jesus and the righteousness of God. It says in verse 22, even the righteousness of God through what? Through faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus Christ. To all, get that? Who, who's lost? All. Who faced the wrath of God? All. Who has the opportunity to receive the righteousness of God? To all. Ain't that good? To all, and to all who do what? Who work, who are baptized, who, who go to church a bunch, who are moral. To all who believe. To all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It means you missed the mark. The word fall short of the glory of God means you missed the mark. You know, if, you, if you're into hunting, you probably, there's several of us in here who are. We're in the middle of, we're in the first beginning of bow season right now, Okay. If you have an animal walks out that you just, ugh, 200 inch deer, okay? You can draw back. 
You can focus. You can do your best. You can aim and you can shoot. You can miss by three feet. You can miss by a quarter inch. I won't call his name out, but there was a man last year who missed by just a little. And you know what? He missed. He missed. It might have just, you know what? You might miss the glory of God by two miles. You might miss it by that much. Think about this. Judas kissed the door of heaven. He kissed Jesus. He's the door of heaven. And he went to hell. We all fall short. Don't matter how short, don't matter how close you get. What good is it going to do for you to stand there by, you know, Hitler? And he'd be like, whoo, you missed it by a mile. And he'd be like, you missed it by an inch and we're going to the same place. We all fall short of the glory of God, okay? And then it goes on down and it says, being, oh, this is so good. Let me, let me back up and give you a real, I'm going to get you out here real quick, but I want to give you the meaning of this word. It says, faith, faith in Jesus Christ, uh, back up in verse 22, even the righteousness of God. How do we get the righteousness of God? How are we made acceptable inside of God? Through faith in Jesus Christ. You know what the word faith means? It doesn't mean, oh yeah, I believe in God. It's not talking about that. The word faith, look it up in the Greek, Strong's Concordance, Thayer's Lexicon, okay? The word faith means to have a fervent, holy conviction. It means I'm absolutely convinced. No matter what anybody else thinks, says, no matter what, no, I am, here's what I'm absolutely, this is why my faith is. My faith is not, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, I believe he died on the cross. Uh, I had that my whole life. My faith is that I have a very fervent, absolute conviction in my heart, in my mind, in my will that Jesus is the Son of God, born of a virgin, died on Calvary's cross for my sin, buried my sin in a grave, rose and defeated my sin and death, offers me by his goodness and grace mercy in his sight because of the blood that he shed for me. I believe it now. I'll believe it when I die, and I'll believe it for all eternity. I am absolutely 150% convinced, and nothing will ever change that in me, no matter what. That's faith. I'm not telling you to be like me, but I'm just saying we, some people got this idea, oh, yeah, I'm, I believe in God, I'm good. This, that has nothing to do with what faith is talking about here in the Scripture. Do you have that? Because that's a life changer. If you say that you have faith and it hasn't changed anything, produced anything, caused you to hate sin and to love Jesus with all your heart, if it takes lights and smokes to get you excited in a worship service rather than just hearing the raw gospel, man, I I get so excited. I love the fact that, yes, I am a wicked sinner, a heathen, self-righteous, religious. I fit in all three categories, but... God, who is rich in his mercy, loved me enough to bring me to a place where I recognize I'm guilty before God, and he loved a sinner enough to die in my place so that I could be forgiven of my sin and granted by his grace. Grace is giving by the choice of the giver. He chose to give me grace and to wash away all my sin. Woo, that's good, ain't it? That's why I worship. I don't need smoking lights. Uh, Let me finish up. For there is no difference, verse 23, for all of sin comes short of the glory of God. Here's another good word, being justified freely. You know what the word justified means? Let me make sure I give it to you. I got it in my head. I wrote it down. I want to give it to you. Pardoned from the guilt of sin. Totally pardoned from the guilt of sin. Justified. If you're a born-again believer, you say, how does God see me? Justified, never sinned. I have been told because of the blood of Jesus. What he's done for me at the moment that I trusted and put my faith in what he accomplished for me at the cross, God said, you're pardoned from all guilt of sin. 
Why am I not going to hell? Because by his grace, freely, not something I attain or continue to attain, but freely. Free means free. Free means I chose to forgive you, not because you had anything to do with it, but because of what my son has done in your place. That you are justified by the power of the blood of Jesus, which never changes. If you're justified by your repentance, if you're justified by your attitude, if you're justified by your humility, that will change. The blood of Jesus never changes. Justified freely. If you're God's people this morning, you ever doubt your salvation, look at that. Do you have faith in Jesus? Yes. Have you turned to him as your Lord and Savior? Yes. Then you have in God's sight the judge, the one that you faced in wrath, looked at Jesus. Jesus stepped up in your place and said, I totally forgive him based upon the blood that I shed for him. And the judge of all the universe said, they're justified. They're pardoned. Walk out scot-free. Remember what salvation means? To be set free. Because of what Jesus did for you, God said, you're set free. Free to go. No longer, no longer face the wrath of God. Ever. Ever. <laughs> Let's finish this up so you can get to the restaurant. Justified freely by what? His grace. And this is my last thing I want to give you. Well, it's not totally last, but this is right here in the scripture. Notice what it says. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God has, I'll come back to this later on, but God has so packed this scripture with assurance for you. With assurance for you. You know what redemption means? Redemption means releasing effect by the payment of ransom. Kyle was recently saved. Here's what happened with Kyle. Kyle came to the place where he was like, I'm totally guilty. Totally guilty. I, I agree with God, I'm a sinner. He stopped looking to self-righteousness. He stopped looking to everything else. And he looked to Jesus, putting his faith and trust in what Christ has done for him. A long time ago, before Kyle was ever born, before he ever, the Bible actually says before the earth was ever created, Jesus, in his foreknowledge, looked and saw Kyle, who was a prisoner of sin, a prisoner of Satan, who faced the wrath of God. Who was? Think about this. Kyle was Jesus' enemy. He hated righteousness. He hated the things of God. He lived in such a way, along with me and everybody else here, that we demonstrated that. And yet Jesus looks at I still love him. I love my enemy. Even though he's going to do the things he's going to do and rebel against me, I still love him. I love him enough that I'm going to go make a way to pay what is required. The devil's like, I've got him. I've got him kidnapped. What's it going to take? Your life's blood. And Jesus said, I'm willing. I love Kyle enough. I'm willing to do that. And he went and paid a ransom. And because of that, you know what? The devil no longer could hold on. I would imagine he was holding on all he could, if you listen to Kyle's testimony, holding on all he could. But at the point that he looked at Jesus and said, Lord, will you set me free? The devil had to go, oh, i got to let go because the blood of Jesus releases us and sets us free. He was, that's the effect of the ransom that was paid for every one of us all on the cross. Oh, man, let's look real quick. This is my last verse, Mark chapter 8, verse 38. This is the God's people. Man, if you're here this morning, you're lost. I don't know why in the world you'd want to stay lost. Knowing how much God loves you and what he did to save you. Mark chapter 8. This is a strong warning, okay? You interpret this however you want to, okay? You can excuse it. You can make it fit your belief. But I just want you to read it and let it speak, okay? Mark chapter 8 and verse 38. Everybody there? I just want you to look at it. 
Is there a verse 38? Yeah. Okay, there we are. I'll find it in my Bible. Notice what it says. Oh, man, let me back up. I just saw Let me back up and read that. Verse 35. For whosoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whosoever loses his own life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, notice what it says here. You interpret it. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So what exactly does that mean? I don't think it means God's going to go, you never, you never told anybody. You never shared the gospel with anybody. You never reached to the lost. You only cared about yourself. You said you believed me. You never read my words. It was an embarrassment to you to pray. It was an embarrassment to you to talk about the name of Jesus. I'm so ashamed. Welcome home, son. I don't think that's the way it's interpreted at all. That's the American way. Well, I'm so ashamed. But that's okay. Come on in. I, don't, I think he says what it says. If you're ashamed of me and my words, I'll be ashamed of you. If you have nothing to do with me and my words, I'll have nothing to do with you. If you do not speak for me, I will not speak for you. That's, that's serious. So that means you mean if I'm, I'm not talking, I'm, I'm talking about a continual act of, I'm just ashamed, ashamed. Ashamed. Call it, call it for what it is. We can say, well, I don't like rejection. Ashamed. Well, I'm afraid of this. Can you honestly say this morning, as a born-again child of God, I hope you are, as a born-again child of God, does it make sense to you? Maybe I'm just got my own title. Does it make sense to you that you can say, I, I love Jesus. He's my Lord, my Savior, my hope. He redeemed me. Paid a ransom for me. I love him with all my heart. I just don't want to tell anybody about that. I'm so embarrassed. I don't, I don't speak God's word because it's not accepted. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care if you like Jesus, love Jesus, hate Jesus, hate God's word, think it's a fairy tale, whatever. I didn't ask you. I love him. And, and the church should be a fellowship of the unashamed who believe in the power of the gospel to save a people who face the wrath of God, the day of judgment that is coming upon us very soon. We do not know when that day is coming, but every one of us will die and we will stand before a judge, either as a born-again child of God saved by the blood of Jesus, or they will face the wrath of God spend eternity in hell forever. And yet God's people hold what we say we believe. And we make all the excuses in the world so that we can keep our image, save what people think about us, hold on to a job, make more money, obtain more things, and continue to come to church. Man, let's be real. There are people this week that I come in contact with, that you came in contact with, that are going to die and go to hell for all eternity. Make no mistake, a majority of those people And you hold, hopefully, within your heart and in your mouth, their only hope. Don't don't invite them to church. Don't bump it off on the preacher. Everybody here is accountable to God for what we do. So can you honestly stand before the Lord and say this morning, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God and salvation to all. You don't know these people. They're, they're part of all. 
and, and the grace of God can save them. They, they need Jesus. And, and the whole purpose of the church, the last time I checked, was to be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus. Let's stop making excuses and get into God's word and learn it and understand it and speak it for goodness sake, for their soul's sake. Does God's people really care about the lost? If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus as Savior, listen to me. Maybe, you, maybe you're here and God spoke to your heart this morning. You're, that's you. You're, you're self-righteous. You're religious. But you don't know Jesus. You've never come to a place to go, God, I'm guilty. I'm quit. I'm going to stop offering all these excuses. I'm going to stop offering all these. And I just, I just need mercy. I trust in what you've done for me. God, save my soul. He'll save you this morning. He loves you that much. Or you can walk out and you can have everybody fooled but your own self. And you'll stand before God as your judge. Not me, not any other church member. But you'll stand and look into the eyes of the one who died on the cross to save you, to deliver you, to set you free. Why, would you re- why in the world would you reject that? Please, I'm not asking you to come up here. I don't like walking in front of people. Don't walk in front of people. Right where you are. Right where you are in your heart before the Lord. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. God will save you. And then you need to start telling other people. If you're not telling other people, you know what? The biggest repentance here is not lost people. The biggest repentance here needs to come from God's people. This church should be full of people. You should have people in here that you can look at and go, I shared the gospel with him and they were saved. Who are you looking at that you can say that? If not, we need to repent. Are you standing here bowing your eyes closed?